Ladies and gentlemen, friends, neighbors, loved ones, welcome back to the Robcast. We are in episode two of our series on love with Pete Rollins, who's here with me. Hey, how's it going? Good to be back. We are not in the back house. We are at the kitchen table. He's finally allowed me into his main house. <laughs> it's been a lot of years, so I feel very, very privileged. You worked your way up. <laughs> I've worked my way up, yeah. <laughs> it's also 500 degrees back there. Yeah. Um, Okay, so friends, as you know, we love Pete Rollins and we love it when he's on the Robcast and we're doing this series. And last episode, uh, we talked about love, an introduction to love. Yep. Love part one. And you talked about the personal. So let's start. And then today you're going to talk about the political. Yes, theological was last week. Okay, so last week was theological, then this week political, and then next week personal. Yep. So let's go back to last episode we should just recap yeah. where we went with the theological. Absolutely. So I, I was looking at how the mystics within Christianity and other religions actually uh, often say things like the, the, the language we use for everyday objects isn't appropriate to the type of reality we're exploring when we talk about the absolute or God. So some of the mystics say, you know, God does not exist in the sense that you can't poke and prod, you can't smell or see God in the laboratory, that a, a better way to think about God is that God does not exist, God calls everything into existence. There is this call. Um, God cannot be made into an object. Uh, God is an, an, like an absolute subject. So for example, we're like ships sunken in the depth of the ocean. The ocean contains the ship and the ship contains the ocean. But while the ship contains only a fragment of the ocean, the ocean contains all of the ship. So we are like this, this tiny thing. We're almost like watching a movie from half an inch away from the screen. And so we cannot conceptualize what we're talking about. And then they say sometimes that you know, God is not sublime. Uh, you know, it's not that we worship God or we, we, we love God. In a sense, God is that call which renders the world sublime. When you are in the sight of faith, uh, the world is beautiful. The world has a depth and a density. So God isn't the light. Sorry, God isn't the thing that you see. God is the light that allows you to see. So instead of thinking of God as some illuminated object, you can think of God as the illumination uh, which brings objects into vision. And then finally, the idea that God is not meaningful. God renders the world meaningful. The word God is a name that we give to a type of experience of the world having value and meaning. And I wanted to talk last week about how the poets have a similar language about love. Love does not exist. It calls people into existence. When you love someone, you see them as a singular person. You see them in their singularity and infinite worth, not just as an object, not just as a thing. Uh, love is not sublime. Love is what renders a cause or a person sublime. And finally, love is not meaningful. Love renders the world meaningful. When you're in love, you cannot help but experience the world as meaningful. And when you're not in love, even if you think the world's meaningful, you cannot help but experience it as meaningless. See, we could just... That is a recap of an episode. We could stop right there. Uh, I, I was really interested in how you talked about subject and object. Yeah. And how many things are treated as object that then lose all their power. 
Um, I think about the word creativity. Yeah. And people just being creative and trying to be creative and let's, um, that when it's, it almost becomes an object, which mm. then loses the, well, you're here, you make things. Yes, yes. Instead of um, it being something that you, you know, some end product. Like, you know, it's like, I don't know what your equivalent is, but in uh, England we and Ireland, you have these books called Mills and Boone, which are like trashy romance novels. <laughs> and, you know, that's like making love into an object. But actually, love is not something that you can reduce to a trashy romance novel. It's something you give yourself to. That's the only way to understand it, is to give yourself to it, just like creativity. It's interesting. I've heard people talk about how true holiness is never self-conscious. Mm. So, the most generous people you know do not use the word generous. Yes. And they don't say things like, you know, I've always been generous. Or the most humble people you know never say things like, well, you know, I've just always been humble. Yeah. Humility is just one of my many gifts. Yeah. That the truly humble would never, don't talk about humility. Yeah. And the most generous I, people I know don't call it generosity. They call yes. it living. Yes. Derrida, a philosopher who I really like, he, he talked about what is the perfect gift. He says, what's the perfect gift? He says, well, let's start off by a gift that you give somebody and you know you've given it to them and they know you've, they've received it. He says, the problem with that is you feel great. Oh, I gave a gift and you get the thanks in return, right? So you're getting something out of it. So he said, maybe a better gift would be an anonymous gift. Maybe you give me something, but you post it through my letterbox and I don't know you gave me it. Derrida says, well, that would be a little bit better because at least you're not getting the thanks back. You know? But you can still go home and go, I'm a brilliant person. Wow, look how generous and fantastic I am. So it's an exchange, you're getting something back. So then he says, what about a gift where you, the person doesn't know they receive it, nothing is given, so like, <laughs> they don't even know that they've received something and you don't know you've given it. <laughs> that would be the perfect gift because you're not getting anything in return. And at first you go, what does that look like? But he says, what about the gift of forgiveness? Where, you know, nothing is given, like you don't see something, you don't see forgiveness. The person doesn't know you've forgiven them, you don't phone them up and say, I've forgiven you. And in a sense, for you might not even know you've forgiven them. You're not even conscious yourself. You've just become the type of person that just as a heart beats and just as a bird sings, you forgive. And Derrida says, in a sense, in this state of not being self-aware, you actually, for the first time, touch on what a gift is. It's <sighs> beautiful, beautiful vision. I love this it. This is the recap. <laughs> We're not through the intro. Okay, so let's take this. Love is theological. And by the way, I also love how you reframe, because you know there's this ancient New Testament, God is love. Mm. I love how you, I love how you reframe because I find discussions of whether God exists or not quite boring. Yeah. And especially when people are like, so-and-so doesn't believe in God. We do believe it. I, I, I'm bored. Yes. I'm out. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to go make a smoothie. Yeah. Um, because to me, we're here. Yeah. We're breathing. Yeah. This thing is headed somewhere. 13.8 yeah. billion years ago, perhaps, there was a big bang. Yeah. And quarks, particles, formed atoms, formed molecules, formed cells, formed systems. Like... There is this, yeah. it is flowing, becoming, surging forth. The universe is headed somewhere. Each of us are in the endless process of becoming. There is this, yeah. and that when people use the word God, we're essentially trying to name all, that of ultimate concern, that of which nothing greater can be conceived, ground of being, source, yes. mother, father, Gaia, whatever language, yeah. spirit people use for this. 
um, I always, and, but you have helped me understand, oh, when you turn the divine into an object to be poked, prodded, analyzed, and stood at a distance from, yes. and then, well, do they worship the same God? What about that God? You, yeah. you are creating a subject object. Yes. We're now all staying at a distance. Yep from the thing, discussing whether this is better than that, or mine can beat up yours, or yeah. yours you made up, but this one is absolute, whatever it is, yeah. which is just a completely different discussion yeah. from we experience joy, mm-hmm. we experience meaning, we explore, we have questions, we love, we give, we have something surging within us that is more alive or it's more dead, it's more on fire or it's more yeah and that discussion is just a fundamentally different absolutely and this is a very discussion. ancient uh, uh religious notion and it, within judaism it's very very key the idea that our beliefs aren't in our heads they're in our hearts so we often don't know what we believe i mean if we knew what we believed uh, nobody would go on a reality TV because we all think we're <laughs> great and we all think people will love us and we go on a reality TV and then you realize that you're an idiot. But you have to have that distance from yourself because you don't really know who you are or what mm-hmm. you believe. Or if you read your diary three years after you you wrote it, you go, oh my goodness, was that me? We're so close to ourselves that we don't even know what we believe half the time. And within a, some of the, the religious tradition, there's an idea that your beliefs are in your heart your beliefs are something you live out of. So within a Jewish tradition, often belief in God is irrelevant. It's like, they don't care if you believe in God, my goodness, like, who cares? But do you keep a kosher home? Are you part of the community? Are you part of the rituals of the, of the, of the, of the group? Um, belief in God, that comes and goes. We're all atheists and theists, and we're all agnostic. Uh, even if we don't think that. Sometimes when you're ill, you're pr- you pray, even if you don't believe in God. And I know many people who say they believe in God, but but actually live very comfortably without any of you know that that sense. So perhaps just like love, it's not. This is not an intellectual thing we're talking about. It's it's a way of living in the world, a way of interacting with the world. That the greatest concepts like love, gift, and God, uh, and others are they operate in a different dimension. Oh, I love that. Uh the Apostle Paul, New Testament writer, first century, very Jewish man, he goes into Lystra, book of Acts, chapter 14, Greek city that has none of his Jewish heritage, none of his language, customs, Moses, David, don't know any of that. And he says to them, they start, they, they worship him because they think that he's Zeus, come to earth. And he says to them, ah, no, 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 I'm urging you to turn away from these idols. But he has this great line where he says, I'm here to talk to you about the living, the divine, the living God. Who do you think fills your hearts with laughter? Who do you think fills your stomach with food? Mm. But he begins with your lived experience. Yes. I'm here to talk to you about the source of what you've already tasted and touched and yep. experienced. Yep. Let's yeah. talk, let's, which, is, which begins from that which is being brought into being. Absolutely. It's starting point. It starts, yeah. Carl Barth was once asked, did he believe the serpent literally spoke in the Bible? And he said, I, I don't care about whether the serpent literally exists. I care about what the serpent said. And in other words, he starts <laughs> from this experience of a call. So in Icon, there was atheists and theists and agnostics. This but is it, what you did in Belfast. Oh, yes, yeah. Belfast. Transformance art community. Transformance art community, that's right. And in that community, there were all sorts of beliefs sure. or not. But you ask anybody why they're there, they might say, because I feel the call of the absolute. You go, I didn't think you believed in God. Well, no, it might be the pizza I ate. It might be the way I was brought up. I don't know. I don't have any insight into the universe. All I know is that I've been caught up 
in a call and oh, I feel that I have to yes. answer that call. Yes, something has been tugging on my sleeve. Something yes. is making the hair on the back of my neck stand on end. Something yes. is a lump in the throat. Yeah. Beekner talked about, I don't know what you're, I don't know. All I know is there's a lump in my throat. Yep. Yeah. And <laughs> interestingly, Paul Tillich said that theology is a discipline designed to protect us from two things superstition and crude materialism. And basically this, where he said superstition is a way of trying to say, I understand the transcendental, I understand the absolute, and I can control it. And crude materialism is a way of saying, there is no call. There, like, everything is just atoms crashing against the atoms. It's a two-dimensional, flat, two yeah. black-and-white world, yeah. And interestingly, he opened the possibility, both for atheists and theists, because there's ways of conceptualizing the world in this way, whether you believe in God or not. But he said, there, basically, theology at its best keeps us open to the call that the world can be better, that we can be better, that, that there can be more love and justice, and it sensitizes us to that call. That's it. Man, oh man, Pete Rollins here at the kitchen table. Okay. <laughs> now, let's move from rethinking about love through a theological lens to, I was interested when we first started talking about this, and you said we should talk about love, the, poli love yeah. the political. Yeah. So, an introduction to love, episode two, talk to us about the political. Yeah. Well, one thing about love... I think is that, uh, you know, whenever we first go out there into the world to find somebody, you go into a dating site, for example, and you want to find a partner, we often pretend that everything's great. We, of course, want to have our best pictures up there. We want to look like we've got our life together. Everything's wonderful. But, of course, we all know that life is difficult. We all have struggles and we all have difficulties. Uh, but we hide that. Um, to be human is to actually exist between who you are and who you would like to be. All of us live in this space of the in-between. And if I relate to somebody, I don't simply relate to who they are. I also relate to who they would like to be because that enters the relationship in good ways and in bad ways. And so what I'm interested in is also we live between what we have and what we would like to have. Sometimes so when you're in a relationship with somebody, you're in a relationship with both of those. Yes, yeah. They, that you, a human being, in a sense, lives between those two spaces. And whenever I love someone and care for someone, I relate to both of those dimensions. Now, often we, we think that they fit together. So, for example, if you go out on a Saturday night and you're dressed up really well and you look really good um, and you, you, know, you go on a date and it's not going well, maybe you look in the mirror and you go, look, that person in the mirror, they've got it. You go like, I'm looking great. So inside you've got all this anxiety and all these fears, but on the outside you look fantastic. And you know, there's a moment where you feel, I've got this. But, but basically in, in, in life as a whole, we live in that space between. Um, by the way, this starts in a thing called the mirror phase. Supposedly a theory is that when you're young, you're weak and you're always falling over and it's very, very difficult. And so your parents will say to you, oh, look, you know, look at you in the mirror. You're really strong. You're really beautiful. Or maybe you're mirrored in your sister or your brother. Oh, your brother's really strong, and you're just like your brother. You're just like your sister. And the child gradually begins to create an ideal of what they would like to be. And then they have their inner experience and suffering, and then they have their ideal. And the parent is the one who bridges the gap. They say, look at that. See that powerful person, your brother? You're just like them. 
Now, there's a technology that exists today where you see this. It's Instagram, right? Selfies. Uh, selfies are this really interesting thing where you take a picture of yourself and you put it up online um, and, and you, you give it to other people. A selfie is never for the self. A selfie is always for somebody else. You always want to put it out there so someone else will see it and then they'll like it and they'll go, that person in the photograph, that's you. Because you put it up there, you don't think it's you, you know, you maybe feel your life is a bit rubbish, but you put up a picture climbing a mountain, looking great, doing yoga, and people like it and they say, look, you know, that's, that's you, and that helps connect your ideal with your reality. So people laugh and say, oh, selfies are always for another, but it would be much weirder if you took selfies and then just kept them in an album and you just watched them yourself. On a Tuesday evening, you'd pour yourself a glass of port and look at your selfies. Of course, <laughs> selfies are for another. They, they help us, you know, articulate our ideals. But, but very quickly... What I a selfie in some oh. ways is a question. Yes. Is this me? Yes. Yes. And, there, and you get a thumbs up and you get a bunch of likes. Oh, this is me. That is me. That is me. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. We all do this. Sure. I mean, you're not going to get very far in Tinder if you tell all your truths, all your struggles right, and all of that. Right. But here's the difference. We desire people who look like they've got it all together. But we love people when we can embrace the struggles and the anxieties and the difficulties they have. You know that you love somebody when you're able to embrace them in that space between the ideal heaven of what they would like to be and the earthly reality of what they are. Love is accepting that part of the other and actually enjoying it. It's like putting your arms around both spaces yes. that exist within that other self. Yes. So Lacan, a philosopher and psychoanalyst I really like, he had this great saying where he said, love is giving what you do not have to somebody who does not want it. <laughs> uh, um, which is brilliant is because what he's saying is you actually give your lack and you give your pain and you give your desire when you love you give that you, you open yourself up and say I'm not perfect I need you there's something in my life that's not working I could be better and I'm giving that vulnerability to you and the other person generally doesn't want that at the start that's the last thing they want, your vulnerability. They want you to complete them. They want you to be perfect and wonderful and make their life better. But the miracle of love is when an individual gives that, 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 that lack and that anxiety and the struggles to another person and that other person embraces it and says yes to it and says, I, I also struggle. Let's struggle together. Uh, it's like, this is all of me. Yes. Can you take all of me while at the same moment the other person is saying, this is all of me? Yes. It's the opposite of the idea that, oh, if we go out, you will, you will complete me. You will fill the lack in my life. This is saying, no, no, no. When we go out together, our anxieties and our struggles will meld together and we will cherish those and we will use them as a fuel for, for a better relationship and for adventure in life. But you know what? Till the day we die, we will struggle and we will uh, fight sometimes and we will disagree. And actually, not only is that just part of life, that's actually fun. That, you know, you turn the difficulties into something that is, that is useful and even enjoyable. Well, okay, so... Now to the political. Ah, uh, yes, yes, yes. So in a sense, I think a politician is someone who is sensitive to the call of the ideal, 
but with their feet firmly rooted in the reality. A politician lives between the world as it is and the world as we would like it to be. In a sense, they live between heaven, which is in a sense, you know, the place of perfect uh, freedom, democracy, and justice. I've heard you talk about the impossible. Ah, yes, yeah, heaven in philosophical language can be called the impossible. Because every time you try to bring justice, freedom, or democracy into the world, uh, it, it doesn't quite work. Uh, the philosopher Derrida I mentioned earlier, he had a beautiful analogy where he said, we live between law and justice. He said, the law is all our human attempts to articulate justice. A good law is. So if you have a, a good legal system, it is trying to write down what justice is for the people. Right? But every time you write down what justice is, you don't write, you, you miss it. It doesn't work. It's an unjust to somebody. As soon as you write a law that says you shouldn't destroy private property, somebody comes along and destroys some private property from the army who are about to bomb somewhere. And then you go, oh, well, that's not just. So at its best, you always are revisiting the law to try to articulate justice. But here's the trick. The law is never just. But without the law, we'd have no idea what justice is. Without the law, justice is an empty, impossible abstraction. We can say freedom, but until you actually argue what freedom is, it's just an empty word. And so the politician, in a sense, is someone who is sensitive to the impossible, to the call of democracy, of justice, of love, but who tries to articulate what that looks like in a given situation um, with the, the problems and the limitations that we have. It's interesting, um, a number of my friends who have lived in communes yep. speak, leave with a bad taste in their mouth. Yes. Um, we all sold our stuff and we lived in this big yep. house together. We bought like three houses in a circle and we shared all our stuff and now I hate them all. Yeah, the, 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 the two extremes, are right. one extreme is a type of Machiavellian life where you just, you close yourself off to the sound of justice, you close yourself off to the impossible and you just live for yourself. But the other extreme you can call Gnosticism, where you try to say, we have the community that is perfect. We have the community where freedom, democracy, and justice exist. And cults often do that. They create these spaces of perfection, these new Edens, where they say the evil and darkness is out there in the world, but we have the perfection. And both are deeply problematic. Uh, it's interesting when you said like the cult. The cult is often the pursuit of justice without the law, but turns out that the cult leader yes. is actually making the law. Exactly. The <laughs> it law actually is has always a law there. under there. Yes, right. it's, it's just not seen, it's implicit. Like, whenever you have a cult where everyone's equal, well, you, you know there's the person who's called the great white goat and who's wearing the turban is not equal, you know? <laughs> so you can, it's actually sometimes better. And whoever, you, whoever announced that everybody's equal? Yes, is the one. Who made that announcement. Who calls the shots, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. And you see this often, that you know, on, on social media, it's incredibly easy to dwell in the impossible, to not do anything but to condemn everybody. Because whatever you do, it's not going to be good enough. If, if we want to save everybody from road accidents, we would immediately make the speed limit 10 miles an hour. So if, you, if you're not Which would be dangerous in another way, yeah, but go on. Yeah, but, you know, <laughs> if you, if, and if, but if you don't do that, well, you must hate people. You must hate people, because why else would you want people to drive at 60 miles an hour? You know that can kill them. So it's a, it's a claim that is both legitimate, but completely divorced from reality.
There's actually a little story from Ireland where this American comes over and she's trying to find her way to Tipperary and she pulls over, there's a farmer. Tipperary is the name of a, what's that? Name of a place, yeah, Tipperary is in the south of Ireland. It's great, there's Tipperary? a song about it. There's a long way to Tipperary, yeah, or it's a <laughs> long way to Tipperary. Um, but she pulls over and says, how do I get there? And he says, okay, get out your pen and paper. He says, the first thing you need to know is I wouldn't start here. Right? <laughs> now, that's what you feel when you see a lot of people on social media is... <laughs> You know, so divorced from the fact that we have to start here, <laughs> but we have to move from here to something else. And it's justice and the impossible that call us forward. And it's the world is where we stand. So in terms of love, the reason why I think this is a politics of love is that in the same way that when you love an individual, you acknowledge that they live between who they are and who they would like to be. You accept that and you enter into a relationship where you use that to try to always move forward, always knowing there's more to come, more to go, more to, more to work out. In the same way, a good politician does not say, heaven is here, I have heaven, or I can give you heaven if you just do this. Um, you know, it's, it, we would have heaven if it just wasn't for those people over there. They're selling a kind of lie. What you want to see is a politics that says, you know, we have to live in the real world, but we have to be called by justice and love and by democracy. And we will work in that messy space and we will accept that and we will enjoy it and we will move forward together. That's a type of politics of love. You know, um, I assume that lots of people listening immediately would have, like if this was a live event, I could imagine, and you said, now I'll take questions on the politics <laughs> of love. Yeah. I'm assuming you'd have somebody who'd say something like, things right now appear more polarized and divided than ever. Yeah. Um, how do you, tell me how this, put, put legs on this for us yeah. in terms of the current climate. And the number of people I've met, or even recently number of questions I've heard that had something to do with I can't even have a discussion with friends, family, neighbors, coworkers. Yes. Because it just degenerates into a food fight yeah. so fast. Yeah. Both sides more entrenched yeah. than ever. What, what does a way forward I mean, look it's, like? It's counterintuitive in a way because say uh, you're arguing with your partner you're, uh, and you're having a fight about something that's in the paper. Uh, you think one thing, uh, Kristen thinks another. You know, within five minutes, that slight disagreement back and forth can become like World War III and you're both talking like experts. Like, I know this and I know that. And suddenly you've got this crazy thing where <laughs> this power discourse is bouncing back and forth and no one's going to move. And it takes one person to say, you know what, to be honest, I don't really know what I'm talking about. I mean, I have a little suspicion that this is the right way to think, but I'm talking like I'm a world expert. I'm not. Uh, and actually, you know what, I need to listen to what you're saying. And the, the paradox of that is, the other person might go, yes, I won. <laughs> but if they're a half-decent person, they're likely to go, yeah, and to be honest, I'm not sure either. Uh, I, I, I have a suspicion it's like this, but hey, you know, I could be wrong. And then a real conversation can happen. And this is a difference between what I would call a power discourse and a powerless discourse. A power discourse comes in and says X, Y, and Z. It's a command-based thing. You have to do this. You have to do that. You have to do the other. A powerless discourse is one that hints and asks questions and is open to the other. 
And the thing about powerless discourses is that they can actually create much more productive spaces for dialogue. So very practically, if someone goes home and their family think very differently about politics than they do, sometimes the challenge is, I say, the counterintuitive one, to say, I might be wrong, actually. I, I want to hear what you have to say. I'm going to listen. I'm going to listen well. I'm not saying I'm going to agree with you, but maybe you can help me be a better person. So whenever we did the evangelism project in ICON, which was a, a group where we went to be evangelized by other people. So we'd go to the Humanist Society or the Islamic community to, to be evangelized by, by them. The, the trick wasn't that we would like, become humanists, right? The evangelism happened in the second part of the night when we said to them, listen, I think our community has maybe done some damage in the world. Hopefully some good as well, but maybe some damage. What do we look like to you? What do I look like to you? And then when you see yourself through the eyes of the other, you're evangelized to be more into your Christianity or more into your humanity. The other becomes an instrument of your further conversion. So in a sense, I would argue that how, do we, how would it be to see the other as an instrument of our further conversion? We must be born again. We must be decentered, and And the other person, even if they have views that seem very anathema to us, that maybe there's something in that that we will learn from. And, and the trick is, when you model that, it's more likely, not, not sure, a surety at all, but it's more likely that the other person will also lay down their weapons and go, okay, I've never listened to you hippie types before, but you know, give, me, give me your best shot. Can I give you one example of this, actually? Yeah, or, by the way, oh, okay. Yep. I think that that question... That is a really, really profound question. How do I look to you? How do yeah. I, not in a vein, like how do I look to you? Yes. But in a, how do you perceive me in yeah. this? Yeah. Because um, we all have I'm, pollution that we don't see. I'm thinking of the person at Thanksgiving mm. who's like, oh, it's going to get ugly um, because Uncle Phil's going to go Fox News on me and it's going to, hold on. Like if somebody said, hold on, how do, how do, I, how do you perceive me? Yeah. Um, wow, that is a really, that's interesting. And, and also another thing about Uncle, what was the name? The fictional Uncle Phil. Uncle Phil, <laughs> uncle uncle Phil, uncle is, Phil now is. The, is now the guy. No, nothing yeah. but love if your name is Phil and you're an uncle. Yeah. Well, you know, take Uncle <laughs> Phil and say Uncle Phil is a churchgoer and he's, he's in his church and they're going to change the altar and they're going to fix a few things and Uncle Phil is saying, over my dead body. It's been like that when I was a kid. It was like that for my father and for my father's father. And you're like, oh, it's so annoying. This guy is just always fighting about changing the carpet and changing the altar. Well, what I think we need to do is be more sensitive to the fact that it's probably not about the carpet. It's probably because he lost someone he loved. He's lonely. Maybe the people around him don't love him. Maybe he's in a home and he's scared of dying. The problem for us is when we think that what we say or what someone else says is, is, is everything they're communicating. There's nothing attached to it. Yes. Right. Like whenever someone says, you know, you're having an argument with your partner and say, I want you to leave. It's very rare that they mean that. Because if you turn around and leave, they might go, what are you doing? Well, you told me to leave. Yeah, but I want you to fight to stay. That's what the, that's what the trick is. It's, I want you to leave so that they can find out if you'll fight to stay. So in a similar way, sometimes and if two people are arguing about, oh, you always keep the lights on at night. Okay, maybe that's a small annoyance. But if, you, if it goes to World War III because of that, it's not about the light. 
Yes. It's about something else. Yes. And and you want to that's what indirect powerless communication is a communication that lowers people's defense mechanisms and allows them to be honest. So that if I say to you, You are you were so nasty to your mum last week. Even if you think I'm right, you're likely to go, No, I wasn't. She's in a nightmare anyway. You don't know what she's like. But if instead I go out and buy you a cup of coffee, we sit down, I say, Man, you seem really stressed at the moment. You're more likely to say yes, and I really took it out on my mum. Right? As soon as I find a, an indirect way to communicate, your defense mechanisms go down, and you can be more honest, not just with me, but with yourself. But I interrupted you. Like three minutes oh, ago. Oh no! I was just—I just had a beautiful example of this a few years ago. Um, a, a guy who's a great friend and someone very close to me, who's a, a Republican, very strong fiscal Republican, um, and he—he he did a at my book launch. For like American Republican or Irish Republican? Uh, American, American, American Republican. Okay. And at a book launch for one of my books, he got up. And he actually introduced me and he said, I want to tell you a story about this guy I became friends with. Some crazy Irish leprechaun guy. He says, he says, he says Pete likes parables, so this is a parable. <laughs> I mean, this crazy Irish leprechaun comes over to America and he's got all these crazy left-wing views. And you know, he doesn't realize that you have to fight for things and pull your socks up and work hard and that's how you go about things. And he said, but the, the thing is, the more... Uh, this Republican hung around with this Irish leprechaun, the more he started to see things from a different perspective. Oh yeah, some people don't have the same opportunities. Uh, there's, intel there's academic disparities, economic disparities, and he said, this, this leprechaun didn't make the Republican a Democrat or anything like that, no, no, no. But he made the Republican a, maybe a better Republican, maybe a more caring Republican. Maybe that Republican went away seeing the world a little bit different. Now, he said this in a room where most of the people in the room were Republicans. And he said this, and it was beautiful. I was so touched by it, because he was obviously talking about himself and me. I was like, he said, like, no, I'm not going to you know, see the world exactly the way you see it. But you know what? Your eyes have let me see things that I wouldn't have otherwise seen. And maybe I'll be a better person as a result of it. And if we can model that, I think that that's a much more productive space for something to happen. It's interesting. You talked in the last episode about subject-object. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting how much of the polarization is about subject-object. Yeah. That person is an X. Yes. Reducing somebody to something. And by the way, that is a defense mechanism. Whenever you break up with somebody, you often think the other person's evil, terrible, awful, and you're innocent. And that's a defense against your suffering. It's fine. Everyone does it. But the problem is, if you don't get over that, you're never going to move on. You're rendering a person an object. Yes, rendering a person an object, and you're destroying yourself. You'll never be able to have another good relationship. You'll always be thinking about them. Now, in wars, it's the same thing. Second World War, the Germans are evil and bad. Right? If anybody stood up and said, the Germans aren't all evil, you know, you'd lose your job. You might be put in prison. Um, but what happens is, eventually in a relationship, Somebody might say to a person, listen, you're always saying that person's evil and wrong and bad. I think you're just hurting. I think you're really struggling and it really impacted you more than you'd like to admit. And if that's said at the right time, the person will go, yeah, and you know what? It wasn't all their fault. It was partly my fault as well. And as soon as that breakdown happens, as soon as that that splitting begins to break, mm. something novel can happen. And in politics and in war and in relationships, novelty 
can only occur whenever we, we stop splitting. So there's a point in politics in Northern Ireland where loyalists had to go, maybe not all Republicans are evil. And Republicans had to say, maybe not all loyalists are evil. In fact, maybe we share some things in common. And it was only when you're able to not reduce the other to some object to You call it splitting. Splitting, yes. Where you split the world into goodies and baddies. And I'm the goodie, you're the baddie. Um, that's, that's a defense that's useful in a short term, but no novelty can happen and no progress can happen. It's a short-term survival mechanism to get you yes. just a little way down the road. A little way down the but road. But if you don't leave it behind yep. and move from the splitting to something else, you get yep. stuck. Yes. And powerless discourse is a discourse that helps to unstick. So, for example, I, I, I know of uh, someone uh, who their, their son um, was, was murdered. And they, they uh, you know, basically their son was, they saw as an innocent victim in all of the, in what happened. But it turned out that the son actually was part of the gang that killed him. But while they were dealing with the suffering, they couldn't cope with looking at that. Their son was an angel. The person who killed him was evil. And somebody pointed this out. They were kicked out of the family. That's totally fine. But after a number of years, they were able to go, okay, it wasn't as simple as that. You know, you know, our family and our son was implicated in some way. And that was actually part of the healing process, you know, that where the splitting begins to disappear. But the splitting was completely legitimate. You completely understand why they were splitting. But someone comes in with care and concern and, and says the right thing at the right moment, which is what a parable is. A parable is a powerless discourse, which if it's said at the right time, gets around people's defense mechanisms and allows you to, you know, uh, see the world in a richer way. But there's a quick story, I don't know if you know this one, I'm, sh I'm sure you do, but about a guy who's on a desert island for 10 years, completely alone, nobody else on the island, right? Nobody else. Eventually he's rescued, bless you. Eventually he's rescued, and before he's taken off the island, one of the guys says, show us around, how'd you live here for 10 years? So he brings him to this area with three buildings, and the guy says, what's that first building? He says, oh, that's my house. I built that when I first landed. He says, well, what's that second building? This guy's an Irish guy. He's called Seamus, right? This guy, Seamus, says, uh, oh, he says, I'm a very religious man. I'm a very religious man. He says, that's my church. I go there every Wednesday to pray. Very nice. So, what's that building beside it? I said, I don't want to talk about that. I don't want to talk about it. Come on, what's the building beside it? No, I don't want to talk about it. Oh, come on, Seamus. He says, okay. He says, that's the church I used to go to. Terrible place, right? Now, that, for me, captures the essence of how we want to simplify the world into goodies and baddies. The bad church was the church I used to go to. The bad community is the community over there. I'm innocent. I'm good. We try to distance ourselves from the difficulties of our lives and the struggles. But the more we can be honest about those in our own lives, the more we can also help others be honest about them in their lives. Splitting begins to diminish and real political discourse can arise. Which is why you talked in the last episode about love is sublime. Yeah. It embraces all of it. Yes. And meaningful. it brings meaning into the world. Meaning and beauty. You experience the world as worth living for and dying for. The discussion's worth engaging in. Even if you don't intellectually believe it, it doesn't matter. You believe it in the core of your being. In philosophy, it's called existentially. You believe existentially um, in in love, in truth, in democracy, in beauty. Even if you don't really believe 
that they have any substantive reality. It doesn't matter. You believe in them in your heart. It beats around your body. It's in your bloodstream. Seriously, Pete Rollins. Oh, man. And wait, but this is only part two. We'll do an, another episode. Oh, yeah. The next one's uh, very exciting. It's, I swear I want to talk about the difficulties of love in a personal way. Uh, how do we love and desire a person? Often we love someone but don't desire them, and we desire people we don't love. Uh, a lot of relationships fall into problems precisely because of this. So how do we love in our own personal lives? That's next week. <laughs> <laughs> Grace and peace, everyone.